Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Not to the book of Mark, but to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 is where we will be here this morning. Uh, Paperback Bibles, this is on page 572, so if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs, page 572, Colossians chapter 1. Um, Yes, we are going through a series on the book of Mark, as most of you know, kind of working our way through that book. We have just three more sermons left, actually, in Mark um, before we finish And um, we're going to finish Mark, however, in January. We're not going to finish Mark in December. So another pause in this sermon series. But the reason why is because, as we have already heard, that this is the season of Advent. Um, We're thinking about Christmas here in December as we look forward uh, to the 24th and the 25th. And so we're going to take some time here now to think about the, the reason or the meaning of the Advent season. There's lots of things we do during Christmas, but uh, I think probably most of you know that Christmas is about more than just watching Elf um, or Home Alone for the 10th time uh, or getting your peppermint latte at uh, Starbucks or getting all your gifts finished on Cyber Monday. I mean, these are all kinds of traditions that we have fallen into here during Christmas. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those things, but I hope you know that the Advent Christmas season is about something much, much greater. And in our culture today, you just don't hear about it that much, right? I mean, even the word Christmas is being kind of eliminated from our vocabulary in some circles anyway. And so uh, even as Christians, it's easy to lose sight of what it is that Advent, Christmas is about. And so there's a theological word that really captures what Christmas and Advent is about, and it's on the screen here behind me. Thanks to Andrew Brown, by the way, for designing this uh, sermon series logo. That says incarnation. Incarnation. That's what Advent and Christmas is about. What does that word mean? Have you heard that word before? I mean, it's in our Christmas hymns, Hail the Incarnate Deity, we sing. Carn, if you just think of that part of the word carn, carn just means flesh. In means in. Okay, nothing complicated there. Incarnation means in the flesh. And who are we talking about who's in the flesh? God. God in the flesh. That's what incarnation means. Probably a lot of you know that. This is review. But perhaps a lot of you have forgotten how staggering, how amazing, how marvelous the incarnation is and how central and foundational it is to the Christian faith. Let me just share with you some comments that others have made. Herman Bavink, the incarnation is the central fact of the entire history of the world. <laughs> Let me think of that statement. That, that is not overstating it. It is the central fact of the entire history of the world. How often do we think about the Incarnation? That's a problem, isn't it, if what Bobbink says here is true. Here's J.I. Packer, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. You read fictional books and all these amazing, fantastic things are brought up in the minds of writers and they're magical and thrilling, but 
nothing so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. Packer's not saying it's fiction, okay? It's the truth of the incarnation. It's beyond comprehension. A guy named Stephen Wellam in his book on the incarnation says there is no greater need for the church today than to think rightly about Jesus. So more important than getting behind the right social cause and more important than voting for the right presidential candidate and more important than having some emotional experience by the Holy Spirit when you come to worship, nothing wrong with any of those things, but more important than all those things, according to Stephen Wellam, is thinking rightly about Jesus, understanding who He is. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter in Mark 8? Jesus didn't say, Peter, what have you done for me lately? Peter, what are you planning to do in the future for my kingdom? Here's what Jesus said to Peter, who do you say I am? What is your understanding of who I am? That's what Jesus wanted to know, and that's what Jesus wants to know from you too. Who do you say that He is? So the incarnation is, is going to help us to understand more rightly who Jesus is. So here's the plan for the series for uh, the Advent season. We'll talk about the divinity of Jesus, a sermon on that, the humanity of Jesus. We'll think about that. Next week, we'll talk about the virgin birth of Jesus. Uh, but today, I think the appropriate starting place for us as we think about the incarnation is to think of what's called the pre-existence of Jesus, the pre-existence of Jesus. That, that is that that, in a sense, Jesus existed before He was born. Okay, now ho hopefully that's kind of got your attention. <laughs> he existed before He was born. How, how could that possibly be true? So we're going to need to think carefully through some of these things, and I'm going to try to be as precise as I can as I, as I explain these things, because this is a particular issue where it's very, very easy to fall into heresy. So pray that, that I don't do that. Um, but uh, it, it's a marvelous thing, the incarnation, and so it's going to be fun over these next few Sundays uh, to see what the Scriptures have to say. So if you're able to stand, please do so. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, uh, this is written by the Apostle Paul. This letter uh, the Col to the Colossians, uh, Paul is writing to the, the church in Colossae. Colossae is a city which is in modern-day Turkey. And uh, just a, a doctrinal letter here, an epistle written by Paul, and here is one of the most important passages in all the Bible about uh, knowing Jesus rightly and about the Incarnation. So 15 through 20, chapter 1 of Colossians, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn born from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. 
Uh, Lord God, these are heavy, weighty matters, but they are given to us by your Holy Spirit. And so by that same Spirit, open our eyes and our ears to behold wonderful things in this passage of Scripture today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so I, I'm not going to try to unpack every detail of this passage, okay? There, there's a lot here to consider, but I, I just want to look to see what this says primarily about the pre-existence of Christ. And so, three things that I want to show you, and the first one is rather simple here, and that is just this, that the Bible teaches the pre-existence of Christ. It's, it's biblical teaching. So, let, let me show you how that comes out. Let's go to our text here. If you back up just a little bit into verse 13, you'll see uh, who Paul is talking about. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So in verse 15, when you see that pronoun he, that's referring to the beloved son, also known as Jesus, the beloved son. And so as the text goes on, we note that what Paul is explaining here is, is how the universe was created. Verse 16, for by Him, the beloved Son, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rules, authorities. All things were created through Him, by Him, through Him. Who is the Him? Again, it's, it's the beloved Son. All things created through Jesus, the beloved Son. This Son is the agent through whom the universe was Made. We think of God the Father as the one who creates all things, created all things. But what this is telling us is that that occurred through the agency, the instrumentality of the Son. So what does this mean? It has to mean then that the Son didn't come into existence at His birth. Right? So when we talk about Christmas and Jesus born in the major, sometimes people get mixed up and we think that the life of the Son of God began at that point. But that's a thought you've got to get out of your mind. <laughs> if the Son is the one through whom all things were created, that has to tell us that the Son existed before He was born. The Son's origin did not occur from within creation, but from outside creation and before creation. So if you look at verse 17, we have uh, the, the phrase that I'm really wanting to just settle in here today. He is before all things. He is pre-existent. That's what that means. He is before all things. If you were able to have a like videotape um, or YouTube video to get a little more up-to-date of, of all of history and you were like rewinding and wanted to get back to the beginning, right? You've done that sometimes when you've watched movies. You, you want to go back to the beginning, so you rewind and you get to a beginning point. If you had a videotape of the entirety of all human history and began rewinding it, you would get back to a time when the universe didn't exist. But you would never get to a time when the Son of God didn't exist. From eternity past... The Son has existed. He is pre-existent. Now, you might say, well, what in the world was He doing all this time? Well, after creation, after the universe was created, the Father created all things through the Son. If you look at the end of verse 
17, it says here, he is before all things, and, and in him, start of verse 17, and in him all things hold together. I mean, think of that. In the Son of God, all things created in the universe are held together by His power. And if the Son were to withdraw His sustaining power and holding the universe together, the universe would dissolve into nothing. I mean, the next time you kind of get bored and, and, and you're thinking about the meaninglessness of life, think about these things. Think about the pre-existent Son of God who is holding the universe together by His power and His might. So what was the Son doing during this time, holding the universe together? But I want to show you some other places where the Scriptures teach the pre-existence of Christ. This is not limited to this little phrase in verse 17, before all things. The Bible teaches this. One of the ways that the Bible teaches this is through what are called pre-incarnate Appearances of Christ. Christ appearing before the incarnation. Christ appearing before He was born. We find this in various places throughout the Old Testament. Let me give you just two examples. Do you remember Genesis 32, the story of Jacob? And he meets that man, or sometimes called an angel, and they wrestle with each other. Do you remember that story? They're wrestling with each other, and the man kind of... Um, puts um, Jacob's hip out of joint, and, and, and the man uh, renames Jacob as Israel. Well, here's what it says in Genesis 32 about that situation. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. It, it's a man who wrestled with him, and yet Jacob says, I've seen God. He was a man, and he was God. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? It, it seems like this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the beloved Son of God in the Old Testament. Here's another example. Uh, this is Genesis 16. You remember the story of Sarah and Abraham, and the promise is made to them that they're going to have a child. The child doesn't come. And so Sarah has this idea that Abraham should get together with Hagar, and they get together, and Ishmael is born to Abraham and Hagar, and then later Hagar is kind of rejected, and then we have this passage here in Genesis 16. The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. <clears throat> so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, "'You are a god.'" of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. It's an angel, but it's also God. Hagar perceives this angel to be God appearing to her in some kind of angelic or semi-kind of human form. So there, there are some disputes about exactly what's going on here, but this seems to me to be another example of a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. He didn't start his ministry when he was born in a manger. And there's many other passages in the Old Testament where this kind of thing could be seen. Judges 2, 1 through 5 would be another example that comes to mind. But this isn't the only place we see the pre-existence of Jesus in the Scriptures. Let's think of Jesus' own words, okay? John 17, the high priestly prayer. Do you remember that? Jesus is praying to the Father. And then we get this extraordinary statement in 17, 5. 
Jesus says, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before the world existed. This tells us here that the world is not eternal. The universe is not eternal. It has a starting point. But also, before the world began, not only did the Father exist, but so did the Son. You know, we have no problem with the Father existing for all eternity and creating the world, but what this is telling us is that the Son was right alongside the Father for all eternity. We're getting some hints of the Trinity here, right? A distinction between Father and Son. We're going to get into that a little more in the series, but not right now. One other example of the preexistence of Christ. This is from John chapter 8. Um, Jesus is in a dispute with the, the Jews and, the, and the, the religious leaders of his day, and, and they're arguing about things. And then um, Jesus says this in John chapter 8. Jesus speaking to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Now, why did they say that? So that this, this would be a... This is a shout-out to Pastor Brian's Discipleship Hour class on space and time, which we talked about this morning just a little bit, about knowing the amounts of time that pass between different characters in the Scriptures. The reason why this is so remarkable is because Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Jesus did. And yet Jesus answers them and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So he's not saying, oh, Abraham just had a vision of me, just looked ahead and saw or got a dream or something like that. He's saying before Abraham was, I am. I didn't just exist alongside Abraham. I existed before Abraham. I am the pre-existent divine son of God. That's what all of these passages are teaching us. Now, one thing I find out really find fascinating about our current culture is the interest that people express in alien life and UFOs. You've been hearing that maybe in the news quite, quite a bit. You know, it's just an endlessly fascinating topic, isn't it? I mean, are there life on other planets? Are we alone in the universe? Scientists ask these questions. The movies certainly deal with it. Um, E.T., Close encounters of the third kind, contact, arrival. I mean, there's just an endless number of movies that are about alien life and our attempts to make contact with alien life. Very interesting article appeared in the New York Times, July 2017, that said that it found this, the study found this, the, the less religious people are, the more likely they are to believe in UFOs and aliens. The less religious they are, the farther they get away from a spiritual understanding from the Scriptures, the more likely they are to think there's some kind of life out there. And so there's a guy named Paul Davies. He's a physicist at Arizona State. don't think he's a believer, but here's what he says. Our interest in contact with alien life stems from the need to find a wider context for our lives than this earthly existence provides. In an era when conventional religion is, de is in decline, the belief in super-advanced aliens out there somewhere in the universe can provide comfort and inspiration for people whose lives are otherwise boring and futile. 
So what he's saying is we all have this need. We, we want to believe that there's something else out there. We want to believe that we're not alone in the universe. We cannot accept that we live a meaningless, purposeless existence. And perhaps that's the reason why we want so badly to think, yeah, there is life out there. Well, friends, what this is all teaching us is that there is life out there. <laughs> and the good news is that it's not just a, you know, little green men or weird-looking creatures. It's the eternal, divine Son of God. We are not alone in the universe. And you know what? Our planet has been visited by life outside our world. And that's what Advent is about. That's what Christmas is about. We've been visited by a holy, eternal, almighty life from the outside who came in. And the way this makes sense is by understanding that the Son of God has always existed. So the Bible teaches the pre-existence of Christ. So uh, now let's consider this. False teaching rejects the pre-existence of Christ. False teaching rejects the pre-existence of Christ. Maybe a lot of you are saying, yeah, I know this. I've heard this a million times. I understand. Not everybody believes this. Not everybody understands this. So, little church history here, okay? Um, a guy named Arius lived many centuries ago, 256 to 336. Uh, he was a church leader in Alexandria, a place that's now in eastern Libya. And he has gone down in history as the chief heretic. How would you like to go down in history as known? As the chief heretic. Um, that, that's Arius. Um, and his heresy sprung as he was grappling with the very things we're talking about today. We recite the Nicene Creed regularly here. The Nicene Creed was written in response to what Arius taught. And what Arius taught has come to be known as Arianism, okay? So here's what the Arians believed. They would look at the Scriptures, and they struggled with the passages that said things like Jesus was praying to the Father, or Jesus was submitting to the Father. And they would look at that, and they would say, how can Jesus be the same or preexistent or equally divine to the Father if He's got to submit to the Father and pray to the Father? It didn't make sense to them. And they were also concerned that if we said that Jesus was fully divine, equal to the Father, that we would have then at least two gods. You throw the Holy Spirit in there, you got three gods, and they didn't want to be polytheists. And so they were concerned. And here's the thing about heresies is generally they are motivated by good desires. Arius didn't want to fall into heresy. He wanted to hold to the Scriptures. I mean, that was his intent. He wanted to believe in one God. If Jesus is God and the Father is God, there's two gods. So he was wrestling with that. His followers were wrestling with this. Well, if you look at verse 15, here's something else that he was wrestling with. Verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. So the Arians got really hung up on that. Firstborn, you see? Firstborn of all creation. That is, uh, he had a beginning. That's what the Arians concluded from that. There was a starting point for the Son of God. He's not pre-existent. They believed that Jesus, the Son of God, was a creature. So they would say He is the highest of all beings, for sure, and He deserves our reverence and respect. But they would say the Son of God does not share fully in the divine nature. 
And so the phrase that came out of Arianism was this, there was a time when the Son was not. That phrase right there is just a denial of the pre-existence of Jesus. It's saying there was a time when Jesus began, a time when the Son had a starting point. So we have to look at this and wrestle with this and answer this. What, what does it mean that He is the firstborn of all creation? Well, notice it doesn't say He was the first created of all creation, okay? <laughs> Paul could have said that, but that's not what he said. Firstborn. To understand firstborn, we have to get back into the ancient culture from hundreds of years before. To be the firstborn in a family doesn't mean today what it did in biblical times. If you were the firstborn of your household, what that meant is that you were the one who stood to inherit all that the family had to offer. You were the heir of all things in your family. That's what firstborn meant at that time, and it's captured in Hebrews chapter one, this is about Jesus. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. That's what firstborn means. It doesn't mean He was created. It means that He is supreme. It means that He is preeminent. It means that He is the foremost person in all the universe. You see that at the end of verse 18, that He might be preeminent. So, the Arians are just misinterpreting. They're misunderstanding what firstborn means. And anyway, if Jesus was created, how can it be said that He was before all things? How can it be said that He was the creator of all things if He Himself was created? So the Arians go way off here. But they were promoting this view that um, there was a time when the sun was not, and their views actually prevailed in the church for a long, long time. Most people in the church believed this. And it was a guy named Athanasius who, who came and, and challenged this teaching. Athanasius was in the minority, but over the centuries, by God's grace, he prevailed. But this was corrected, as I said, in the Nicene Creed. And so again, we recite this pretty regularly, and here's the phrase in the Nicene Creed. I'm not going to quote the whole thing, but the Nicene Creed says this, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father, before all worlds, light of life, very God of very God, begotten, not made. I mean, all these times we come and recite this, and perhaps you didn't realize how much history and thought went into those two words, how important it is that the Creed says that. Not made of one substance with the Father. The Arians would say He was of like substance with the Father. The Son is like the Father, but not the same in essence. Now, this might sound like some theological hair-splitting. We don't have a culture today that has a lot of patience and appetite for this kind of thing, but the church wrestled with this for hundreds of years. And friends, this is not a Presbyterian thing. This is not some peculiar belief that the Reformed folks believe in. I'm not talking about limited atonement or infant baptism here. <laughs> this is the teaching of the church now that has been accepted for the 17 centuries that have passed since the Nicene Creed. This is what all Christian traditions hold to. Baptists believe it. Methodists believe it. Presbyterians, Lutherans, Catholics, Pentecostals. I don't know if they all know that they believe this, <laughs> but they do. This is what all the church has, has believed. 
So you might be saying, well, all right, great. Ancient heresy, that was taken care of, it's finished, it's no longer an issue. That was 1,700 years ago, I'm glad they dealt with it then, and we don't have to worry about it now. Except, have you ever heard of the Jehovah's Witnesses? There's 8.5 million members of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they are basically Aryan. The Aryan heresy lives today. And here's something from the Watchtower Society. This is their um, kind of uh, educational arm regarding Jesus. He is the first and direct creature of Jehovah God, which is exactly what Arius said. It's exactly what the Nicene Creed denies. It's what, they, what Athanasius denied. And that's what we deny. That's a heresy. That's a serious thing. Now, you might think, okay, well, Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they believe that, but, well, we're evangelical, so it's not an issue for us. Well, guess what? The Ligonier came out with a state of theology study. I've mentioned this before, but last year, Ligonier comes out with a state of theology study, and, and they presented this phrase. This was the phrase, and then they asked whether you agree or disagree. The phrase is, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Agree or disagree? And among the respondents of evangelicals, 55% agreed. So 55% are Aryan. 55% are heretics, <laughs> according to these definitions. False teaching rejects the preexistence of, of Christ. It sounds like an academic exercise again, but it is something that has been worked out through many centuries. It is something that we as Christians should value and think about and respond to. So let's go on to the next thing. You still might be thinking, but really what does it matter though? What's the difference if you're an Arian or you're an Orthodox Nicene Creed Athanasius following Christian? What, what's really the difference? And I would say the gospel is greater because of the preexistence of Christ. So let's go to the end of the passage here, verses 19 and 20. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So, Here's what the beloved Son, Jesus, has done. He, he has gone to the cross, He has shed his, his blood, and He did that in order to reconcile to Himself not just you and me, not just those who believe in Jesus, but all things, it says, whether on earth or in heaven. Jesus shed blood on the cross. It, do, it reconciles those who place faith in Jesus and makes them friends of God, but it's more than that. There's, this is like a cosmic renovation, restoration, redemption. It's through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross that we look forward to a new heavens and a new earth where the entire universe is cleansed of sin. And you've got to ask a question, what kind of blood accomplishes that? I mean, think about this. I mean, lots of people have shed blood throughout history, right? There's been lots of wars, lots of people killed. Lots of people have shed blood. Lots of people have shed blood as a sacrifice for others even. You hear lots of these stories in 
war stories, people who dive on hand grenades to save their platoon, or 9-11, lots of stories of people sacrificing themselves so others could be rescued. Lots of people have shed blood and sacrifice for others. So why is Jesus' blood any different? The blood that the soldier shed when he took the bullet for his friend didn't save his friend from an eternity in hell. It saved his life, and that's a wonderful thing, but it didn't do anything for his sins. So what makes Jesus' blood so different? And the reason is what we've been talking about. It's because He is the pre-existent divine Son of God. He is no mere man. He is a man who is God incarnate. As Stephen Charnock says, the sacrifice of Christ deserves an infinite approval because it is offered by an infinite person. It's because we have an eternal, pre-existent God who took the form of man and shed His blood. That's what makes Jesus' blood so special. That's why Peter says this, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, something much better like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. If Jesus was just a mere created man, His blood doesn't mean anything more than the blood of the soldier who took the bullet for his, fr for his friend. It's not unique. It's not special. It can't save. And if Jesus is a mere man, then you and I are still under God's condemnation, and we're all going to hell. If Jesus is a mere man, even if He's a great man, but the only way His blood can save is if He is the pre-existent God-man. And that's what the Scriptures tell us He is. And that means His blood is sufficient to wipe away all of your sins. And friends, it doesn't matter how many sins you've committed. It doesn't matter how long you have been committing certain sins. It doesn't matter how serious the sins you have committed. Maybe you've been in prison. Maybe you've committed an abortion. Maybe you've cheated on your spouse. Maybe you've abused your children. And the society that we live in will not accept you because of those things. And perhaps you think, there is nothing that can save me because of what I've done. Well, if the blood of Jesus is that of a mere man, you're right. Nothing can save you. But if the blood of Jesus comes from the pre-existent divine Son of God, it is fully sufficient to save you from all of your sins. It is fully sufficient to wipe you clean. It is fully sufficient to atone for all of your sins. It is fully sufficient to qualify you to be transferred in the kingdom of His light and to inherit eternal life. Is this the Savior that you believe in? Do you believe in the pre-existent Son of God who shed blood for you? This is a blood that transcends the value of the universe and could save people of a thousand worlds. And if that is true, it's enough for you. It's enough. So rest in the blood of Christ. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the Advent season. Thank you so much Lord, that we can contemplate through your word this astonishing, staggering, 
marvelous truth that you, O oh God, the Son of God, the preexistent Son of God came into the world for us, pursued us in your love, saved us from our sins. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.